WERU to serve its listeners and community. Plus, everyone who takes a survey will be entered into a drawing for WERU hats and t-shirts. Thanks in advance for taking time to add your voice to the voice of many voices. This survey is made possible by a grant from the Maine Community Foundation. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported, nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. The time is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Common Ground. Good morning, and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. Today, the topic for our show, we will be talking about pasture management and grazing, and I have a couple guests here in the studio with me today, but before we get to the introductions and discussion, I'd like to make listeners aware of a few food and farming related events they may find of interest here in our community. Uh, so looking into the month of July, on July 7th, we're looking at a poultry processing workshop, which is going to be held at Mofka's Common Ground Education Center in Unity. And you can join Mofka's livestock expert, Diane Shavera who's actually one of our guests here today, and Mopka's Jason Tessier of Tessier's Farm in Skowhegan as they teach you how to successfully and sanitarily process your own meat birds. More info can be found at mofka.org or at 568-4142. And then later in the month, from running from July 22nd to the 24th, is deepening our relationship with medicine plants, plant spirits, and elemental beings. This is taught by Deb Soul and Misha Schuler, where you can spend a weekend at Avena Botanicals Gardens and learn personal and meaningful daily practices to contribute or to continue connecting with your plant allies. Earth ceremony, plant meditations, herb walks, and more, and there's camping and six organic vegetarian meals provided. Uh, you can call Misha for more information or to register at 274-3242 or visit uh, avenabotanicals.com for more information. And then on July 24th is Open Farm Day, and there are dozens and dozens of farms that will be open on that day, July 24th. And to get listings, you can find that probably most easily online at the getrealmain.com uh, website. And then towards the very end of the month, uh, July 28th and 29th, is the Kneading Conference, which is up in Skowhegan at the Skowhegan Fairgrounds. And longtime MOFCA member Albie Barden will speak on connecting with the sacred spirit of plants. And uh, that will be one of many interesting talks there. And the keynote speaker for the conference will be Amy Halloran, who is the author of The New Bread Basket. So in, for more information, uh, you can email Erin at Erin uh, at MainGreenAlliance.com or you can register at NeedingConference.com. 
Uh, and again, any of those events can be found uh, through the MOFCA website, which is mofga.org. And uh, you can find a lot more information about them through the website there. So to get back to uh, our show for today, where we're going to be talking about pasture management and grazing, uh, I have two guests with me here in the studio, and I'd like to briefly introduce both of them. First, we have Rick Kurzberg in here, who is Extension Professor for the University of Maine Cooperative Extension uh, in Sustainable Dairy and Forage Systems. Thanks for being here, Rick. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Sure. And then also in the studio here is uh, Diane Chavera, and Diane is Mofka's Organic Livestock Specialist. Nice to be here. Thanks for being here again, Diane. So, and I'd like to remind our listeners that this is a call-in show, and we will open up the phone lines uh, shortly here, and I'll give out the number to call at that time. But first, I wanted to get back to our guests and just let them uh, explain a little bit about the work that they do. So, um, Rick, would you mind going first and sure, a little sure. bit about your work? So, uh, again, as, as you mentioned, CJ, I work for the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and... Uh, I work out of the Waldo County office in Belfast, but we do travel all over the state. And I work with a variety of farmers. Um, most of my work is with dairy and livestock farmers. Um, I do a lot of work with both organic farmers and conventional farmers and looking at forage systems. And I look at uh, grasses and um, forage management as a key component to profitability on Maine's dairy and livestock farms. And so we live in a climate where we can grow grass, and we need to take advantage of that. And that's you know one of our things that we think about is uh, a unique advantage. We have good rainfall patterns. We can grow cool season grasses, and we can grow a lot of it for five to six months of the year. And mm -hmm. farmers need to take advantage of that if they want to be a, a profitable and healthy farm operation. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have some more questions about that as we move on through the show, for sure. Um, but then, Diane, if you could just give a little explanation of the work you do for MOFCA. Yeah, I, well, MOFCA's livestock specialist, and I work with all kinds of livestock, everything, chickens, pigs, sheep, goats, dairy cows, um, once in a while a horse here and there, although it's not my specialty. Uh, but uh, I help the farmers manage their animals so that they, a lot of it is so that they meet the organic system plan that they have to have um, set up for their certification. Um, but I also work with people that aren't certified, too, and, and help them manage their pastures. I help them with feed. I help them with health care stuff. I think that's one of my favorite things to do is working with health care stuff. But, mm -hmm. uh, yep. so. so the, the animal health care piece. Yes, yeah, okay. which sort of links to the farmer's health care, too. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it's all tied together. Yeah. Anybody who's taken any of my classes will say, will know that the most important thing is reduce stress. <laughs> reduce stress for all of us. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think I just wanted to start with maybe a, a bigger picture kind of in terms of pastures and forage systems and forage management. And um, Rick, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned we can grow these grasses pretty well in a five to six month period. I'm just wondering if, if we were to look at that five to six month period, kind of what would those activities look like? Kind of a brief overview, maybe. Sure. Other, other forage, store, storage, forage. Yeah, and, and actually before I answer that question, I'd, I'd kind of put a plug in for a new book out that's really focused oh. on the Northeast and, and grazing management. And it's written by Sarah Flack. Um, it's called The Art and Science of Grazing. 
and it's uh, published by Chelsea Green out of Vermont, and it's just come out in the past uh, two weeks or so. And it's, yeah. yeah, I'm working my way through it, but it's very oh, me well too. written. Yeah. It's, it's a really it's a nice yeah. book, and it really goes through, you know, um, managed pastures and the restorative effect of of pasture management can have on soils and soil quality. Okay. Um, and we really focus on that when we're talking about forage crops and and rotations with annual crops that revolve, you know involve tillage and normally when we think of tillage we think of soil destroying properties when you put something in the ground and stir it up you pretty much mm-hmm. degrade soil quality and pastures and sod crops perennial crops tend to be more restorative in terms of their health effects on soil quality and and the soil microorganisms so um, soil quality is an important part of pasture management and we look at using animals for grazing as a way to uh, improve soil health and soil quality. So I think that's another key point we need to think about when we talk about pasture management. We're not just talking about feeding the livestock, but we're also talking about the restorative nature of pastures on soil quality. Okay. Okay. And then um, I think within that piece, trying to find the balance between land where you would be removing the hay crop, say, or forage crop, and then returning nutrients back to the soil somehow. Yeah, and, and ideally, if you're using pasture, good pasture management, the animals are returning a lot of those nutrients back for you. Okay. So basically, you know, you're looking at the crop as a way to capture solar radiation and produce food for the livestock, and then their waste product, which would be the manure and urine that they produce, would go back to, and be recycled through good pasture management techniques. Mm-hmm. And ideally, you know, when we think about pasture management and nutrient cycling, we'd like to see that manure spread uniformly throughout <laughs> a pasture, which is a difficult challenge mm-hmm. if you're managing livestock. But that's the idea. Okay. Yeah. Some farmers will somehow or another drag the pastures after the animals have been on there in order to spread that manure out. There are different techniques for doing that. Even an old bed spring I've seen. Like different types of harrows that you can... Yeah, not necessarily harrows, just something to break it up. Mm-hmm. So, and under ideal conditions and mm-hmm. good pasture management, you would not need to do that. Right. So you're looking oh, yeah. at yep, soil sure. microorganisms that will break that manure down. Yeah. So, But you talked a little bit in terms of like a calendar of what events would take place during a pasture and grazing season. So... You know, ideally, you know, you, you need to look at both the plant and the animal. And, mm-hmm. um, and so in May is usually when our grazing season starts. And we want to look at making sure that when we put animals out on pasture that there's significant amount of biomass there, that the animals can be able to consume that pasture but not degrade the quality of the grasses by over-consuming too much. So, mm-hmm. so when they graze, we want to think about both, you know, deriving nutritional components from the grass for the animals, but also think about the plant and the plant's ability to regrow after the animals have grazed it. And that's a key part of pasture management is allowing the grasses to regrow, um, making sure that you leave enough biomass in the pasture that it'll regrow quickly, mm-hmm. that you're not draining root reserves of that plant. So pasture management involves moving animals from pasture to pasture on a timely basis and matching the amount of grass in the pasture to the amount of animals you have in that little area. Mm-hmm. And so is there uh, maybe a certain height within those plants that if, you graze, if you're grazing too low, then you're doing a little more damage to the root systems? Or Exactly. And each plant's going to be a little different, whether it's a timothy or whether it's going to be an orchard grass or a legume like a clover or an alfalfa. They're all going to be different in terms of 
how low you want to go. But mm-hmm. normally we think of trying to leave, you know, three to four inches of residual material so that plant can regrow. So you're leaving some green material that's going to be able to photosynthesize and, mm-hmm. and regrow quickly. Um, if we look at a horse pasture and horse, you know, are, tend to be poor grazers in terms of the quality of the grass. They graze really low. Mm-hmm. And they, they take off too much of that plant. So a lot of times in horse pastures, you end up with lots of weeds and undesirable plants because all the good grasses get grazed too low by the horse. Mm-hmm. And it degrades the pasture over time. Yeah. Well, some people's philosophy is to graze half and leave half even. So which, uh, depending upon the, the height of the grass, is, is going to make a big effect about how much is left for the plants to grow back with so Mm -hmm. but leaving at least three or four inches is i know i've talked to people who've changed their haying technique too they used to cut the hay off really close and when they started to do it and leave at least four inches behind they noticed how much faster the past or the hay fields come back too so it works for everything Mm -hmm. you know it's that whole idea of leaving enough reserve for the plants to grow again So getting back to your calendar, yeah. so we went through May, and that's, you know, we have lots of cool, moist weather in May and, and June, and, well, typically in June we have more rain than we had yeah. this past year, but normally that's when our grass growth is, is pretty fast, meaning that, you know, if you're rotating pastures, we talk about grazing for a certain amount of time and resting the pasture for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And in May and June, that rest period might only be 15 days. Um, now that we're heading into July, things are going to get hot and dry, theoretically. That rest period may need to extend to 35 or 40 days for that grass to be able to grow back because most of our grasses are cool-season forages, meaning they like it cool and moist. So when it gets hot and dry, they shut down, and that rest period in, in pastures needs to be longer. So it's a, um, a changing system. So a lot of people will hay a field and then turn that into pasture for the second crop or third cutting or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll need more rest periods, so it's critical to make sure that you don't um, turn animals into a pasture that hasn't had a f- full recovery period to, to grow back to a certain height. And normally we look at that as 8 to 10 inches tall of grass. Okay. Okay, so the um, do the, I guess through the season, when we have the cool season grasses coming in, uh, May and June, and then are there other 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 grasses or other plants that legumes that are coming in and enjoy the, prefer the heat of July and August? Or well, no, not really, because they're all cool season. But okay. obviously, legume plant leg, legume plants tend to have deeper tap roots. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, if we look at the tap root of an alfalfa or a red clover, you'll see that they can tap moisture resources deeper in the soil profile. So they tend not to dry out as much as something like a bluegrass, which is a shallow-rooted, cool-season grass. You know, bluegrass tends to just turn brown during the summer and then turns green again in August (laughs) and September. Um, So it's, you know, sometimes that species will change. What other farmers have done or a lot of people are starting to think about are are adding warm-season annuals into a pasture. So something... um, like pearl millet or sorghum sudan grass. Those are all warm mm-hmm. season annual grasses. And people can add those to f- some of their fields uh, th- through a variety of mechanisms to try and get rid of what we call the summer slump. And the summer slump is when those cool season grasses slow down. And if we can have some warm season grasses come in and utilize them during the hot dry period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, another plant that's used is chicory, too, that's interceded in, in, in pastures. So, and one of the ways you can do that is with a no-till drill, 
and uh, Maine Grass Farmers Network, which is an organization that's pretty active in the state of Maine, um, has a no-till drill that they rent out to members. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're interested, if anybody's interested in doing that, they can contact me. Okay. I right. kind of, I don't take it around, but I, <laughs> I decide where it's going, or I don't decide. I just kind of answer the farmer's needs, but try to schedule it so that it's as effective as possible getting around the state. Mm-hmm. And that takes about a 35 to 40 horsepower tractor to run that. So, okay. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you can we can tow it around to farm to farm with a pickup truck, but it needs a, you know, significant tractor to, to run it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. More if you've got to go uphill more. Yeah, it's a very a, a no-till drill is a relatively heavy piece of equipment, mm-hmm. um, and it's important that you know it would be that heavy because it has to cut through sod mm-hmm. to try and get soil to seed contact for the seed you're putting into the pasture. Yep. Yeah, the machine's actually been quite active this year. It's been to a, quite a few farms, and people are actually starting to try to use it now even, too, which isn't usually, isn't the common thing because usually it's too dry this time of year to try to, because the seed needs enough water in order to get germinated. So, mm-hmm. But uh, I think we've got somebody that's going to use it to put in tillage radish to see if that'll help break up the compaction in some of their pastures too. So that's another way to use that piece of equipment and yep. also get extra feed into your pasture. Because mm-hmm. so, the tillage radish will come later on, so you'll have that in the fall. It'll add to the productive productivity of your pasture in the fall. Okay. So, so would that is that no-till drill, is that typically used maybe after a first cutting of hay or a first grazing cycle or... I, I think we're starting these? to see it used all the time now. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, but it, it, it's Diane's lucky enough to be the one who has to schedule that. Luckily, I don't have to do that. But, <laughs> um, it is being used quite a bit. And, and really, you know, our, our weather patterns are so freaky lately, it's been hard to say what's the best time to do what. Yeah. So, um, you know, in Maine, we tend not to have nearly as much of what we call that summer slump as the farther south you go. This definitely a bigger summer slump of cool season grasses but mm-hmm. you know certain years in Maine we don't have that issue mm-hmm. yeah now say. we seem to have a spring slump instead yeah you never know so. <laughs> yeah hopefully we'll get some rain so that's all fluctuating yeah and it screws me up with all my recommendations because you know my <laughs> traditional recommendations don't hold true all the time now and it comes back to bite me because you know people will say you said to do it now and it didn't work yeah yeah, yeah. okay well, if those but that the, the thing you asked about after a first cutting or whatever or grazing, yes, you need to do it when the when the uh, concentration of plants in the pasture that you're trying to seed is mm-hmm. been cut down so that the seeds have a chance to germinate and get into the soil and and get wet and and also to have some seed, some sun in okay. order to get them going. So. Okay, and will some of those some of those uh, warm season annuals you mentioned do they. If they're grazed or cut, they're getting grazed or cut before they're flowering or setting seed, I would imagine. It really depends on, you know, what your goals are. And, you know, some of those can be uh, grazed repeatedly, depending on how you manage the grazing. Mm-hmm. Um, something like millet can be grazed two or three times, but you got to make sure you don't graze it too short. If you graze it too short, you know, they graze off the growing point of that plant, yep. and it's not going to grow back very well. So there's a lot yeah. of pasture management techniques that go along with using summer annuals. Okay. Okay. And then I guess as we get through that summer slump and into later August, September, and maybe see a little bit more rain or temperatures start to shift, those cooler season grasses 
yep. start to come out of uh, yep. a resting period. Yep. Yep. And, and one of the techniques farmers are starting to use at that point is, is something called stockpiling, mm-hmm. where they'll set aside some pastures, and, and certain grasses do really well in the fall. Uh, tall fescue is one of those where you can potentially have it grow very well in September and in October, and if you don't have animals grazing that, you can stockpile a bunch of forage, and then come November, um, have them graze that in November, and the nutritional quality of those grasses holds up even well into November and early December if we don't have much snow. Mm-hmm. And as long as you know the environmental situation is one where they can graze without some environmental degradation, it's a great way to feed animals without having to uh, use up your hay stocks or your silage stocks. Yeah, you would want to do it in real soggy fields. That's what mm-hmm. Rick's talking about with degradation because the animals feed are pretty substantial. They have... Mm-hmm. have a big impact so and actually you can use that impact to put seed in if you want to some people do that you know instead of using a drill or anything they actually will graze the stuff down and and then put the seed right in right before they're finished so that the animal's feet actually put the seed in too that's another way to go so they're stomping that into the ground the last yep. day yeah. or so they're in the yeah. paddock yeah improve yeah. that seed to soil contact mm-hmm. interesting Interesting. And then you take it one step farther. Okay, let's go one step further. (laughs) So um, a technique that some people are using, and not necessarily for dairy animals, probably more for beef animals or animals that don't have a real high production status, is to to graze what we call bale graze, whereas they, they leave round bales strategically placed throughout a pasture and move the electric fence um, strategically so the animals are actually going out to those fields and grazing the round bales that are stored out in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big proponent of that for a couple of reasons. One, I, I really hate to see round bales stored outside. <laughs> yeah, It's a real waste of so, uh, feed. Yeah, feed and, loss there. And, you know, you have to have the right soil conditions because you can create an environmental situation that's going to be detrimental to water bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if the ground's frozen, it's not so bad, although then you want to be careful you're not having a problem with runoff. But mm-hmm. it's an easy way to get the animals' manure spread around out there in the in the fall or in the wintertime so you don't have to do it. But kind of like, I don't know how that works with it because you're not really supposed to spread manure after the 1st of December, right? So Correct. Maine has a manure spreading ban from December 1st to March 15th. Yeah. So okay. I'm not sure how, how the... I don't know who decides that, the Department of Agriculture, whether they'd look on it with uh, disapprovement if uh, if you had animals out there after the 1st of December. But a lot of people do now, mm-hmm. so the weather changing. Okay. And then in the kind of to wrap up the fall going into winter piece, I'm just curious if in the, in the fall time is there, um, is there a certain amount of height or growth that the plants need to have to be able to store up reserves in the root systems to survive winter and come back in the um in the spring i'm curious if there are pastures being grazed down in the fall and then left alone or is there a point where they need to store up those reserves in the roots and actually um if you if you do get sarah flack's book she talks exactly about that point and the fact that people often towards the end of the year, decide to just let the animals do right, whatever yeah, they want. Yeah, and let them out and just go wild. <laughs> and, and actually, that's very detrimental to the pasture because they will go after those most desirable plants and graze them really short. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And depending on the weather conditions, that plant will try and regrow and use up all its carbohydrate reserves in its root system. So yeah. the following spring, you'll have a degraded pasture. So it's really important not to go into the winter with really short pastures and to keep your pasture management system or rotation system going mm-hmm. right up till when they go back into the barn. Yeah, because okay. those plants need those reserves, you know, what's left to get going in the spring, just as same as when you do it when you're harvesting them during the season. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, let's take a minute to uh, remind listeners that uh, you're tuned into WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we are talking uh, about grazing and pasture, pastures and forage systems with uh, Rick Kurzbergen of the Humane Cooperative Extension and Diane Chavera, Mofka's Organic Livestock Specialist. And this is a call-in show, and I think at this point we could look to open up the phone lines and invite any listeners to call in with comments or questions. And that toll-free number that you can call is 1-866-625-9378. And I'll say it again, 866-625-9378. All right. Um, Okay, so we kind of have the calendar year for grazing and uh, pasture and pasture management and I was curious about uh, depending on the different livestock you're raising if there are different uh, grazing patterns different you know forage or feed selection of the animals out there preferences um, oh for sure Diane, if you yeah. want to talk a little bit about maybe between some cattle or small ruminants sheep and goats yeah well the sheep and well sheep don't like it quite as tall they get a little bit fussier depending upon how they've been educated i guess um whether they'll eat stuff when it gets higher or not or whether they'll just walk all over it and trot it in Mm -hmm. um but most people that raise sheep will graze a little bit shorter than they would with a cow cows have a bigger tongue and bigger mouth in order to be able to take stuff in and um, chickens, you know, a lot of people graze their chickens. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't totally graze a chicken. A chicken is not a, a ruminant animal, just like pigs aren't, but they can get a, some of their nutrients from, from wandering around in the grass, and, and they'll eat grass. They like it better if it's three inches or less. So running chickens in after the cows or the or sheep or goats, whatever it is you're ra- grazing, um, that's a good way to go because the the Mm -hmm. grasses are already short and they like that a whole lot better excuse me but i've also seen them just watching my own they actually like the tall grass that has the seed that's gone to seed because i see them up there hopping and and grabbing the seed (laughs) off of the seed heads too so they they think that's pretty fun too pulling those down yeah and then goats goats aren't particularly the best grazers um they're more browsers they like to eat stuff Mm -hmm. that's off the ground more more branches and and brushy kind of stuff or the weedy things that grow a lot taller so they're good for actually starting to if you've got a pasture that's gone by you know Mm -hmm. it's been ungrazed for from some years and stuff is stuff that a cow or wouldn't eat isn't is uh coming in a goat is a good way to bring that pasture back Mm -hmm. into good production because so, okay. they'll eat a lot of that stuff, okay. too. So. Yeah. All right. And what about the habits of cattle, Rick? <laughs> well, again, you know, as we talked earlier, I do a, most of my work is with dairy cattle. And mm-hmm. so cows, milking cows, are always on a you know, <coughs> fairly high plane of nutrition. So yeah. um, the limiting factor for dairy cows sometimes on pasture is how much can they eat. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's really critical if you're feeding a dairy cow on pasture that the density of the forage is is high because cows basically are limited sometimes by the number of bites they're going to take per day. So the amount of material they can get per bite actually determines how much they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. How much they eat determines uh, to a big extent how much milk they're going to give. Okay. So the more dense the pasture, yep. the more intake per bite yep. will produce most amount of milk. So it's and you a, must have a number on bites per day. I, I, you know, every cow is going to be a little different. But, yeah, there are some averages. Yep. But yeah. But okay. So it's really important that the key part of this is that they maximize how much they take when they, you know, as Diane said, when they reach out with their tongue and grab, mm-hmm. that they grab a fair amount of material with each bite. Because okay. that is the, at, the bites per day is the limiting factor. Yeah. It's okay. pretty amazing to go out there and watch a cow if you ever have a chance, nobody's mm-hmm. done it, but to watch a cow go out and graze is, is a pretty amazing thing. That tongue, boy, it can grab a lot of grass when it gets going, <laughs> if there's a lot of grass there. Mm-hmm. If there isn't, then it's got to do it a whole bunch more times, and then it's using a lot of energy to get the grass, and that cuts in on its milk production. So, mm-hmm. but, Okay. Yeah. So I imagine with the dairy <clears throat> dairy cows that you want that you want that density, but you also want that high nutrient content of of what they are grazing exactly so you know we look at both the the protein and energy Um, most of the times cows on pasture are limited by their energy intake Um, usually there's sufficient amount of protein and actually an excessive amount of protein in pastures Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of times you'll see um, that really energy is a limiting factor digestible energy mm-hmm. and grasses have their highest concentration of digestible energy before you see the seed head on it so they're when they're in a vegetative state yeah so when i talk to people about forage quality i always say if you see the head the quality's dead that's mm-hmm. a typical term we use to try and emphasize that point that mm-hmm. quality forages need to be harvested or grazed before that seed head comes out okay yeah although with and it, the, the height does matter. I mean, the higher it gets, the, the more carbohydrate there's going to be in there in relation to the amount of protein. And for folks that aren't feeding any grain or a less amount of grain in their diet for dairy cattle or any other animal for that matter, um, well, except the pigs and the chickens, um, they would actually want a little bit higher stuff because it's that ratio to, to carbohydrate to protein is better. So. And some people, there are philosophies out there that even take it even farther, but it's just a whole nother, whole nother story. So is it the carbohydrates that provide the energy? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, they, and animals need that balance of protein and carbohydrate in order to be able to digest things properly. If they don't have enough carbohydrate in their diet, they can't digest the protein and more of it comes out in the urine, so, which isn't a good thing because you don't want to to uh, environmentally because too much nitrogen gets into the air and just passes right through the animal right yeah. in the urine and, and manure as well yeah yes okay yeah but a lot of it actually does anyway so it's like one manure that's why you want manure on your garden is because it's got so much nutrients in it the cows really don't get a whole lot out of it they they uh, pass a lot out back the other end okay all right um <clears throat> and then i guess in terms of you know, managing these systems, I wanted to ask if there's uh, specific to organic production, if there are certain techniques or methods that organic farmers will focus on um, for managing pasture quality uh, or for storing forage. 
It's the same as what Rick's been saying. Yeah. Well, one of one of the things I think that's really important. You know, we have a lot of people that that look at pastures not as a a valuable crop, and so right. they yeah. doesn't get the nutrient inputs it should. One of the key things that I always run into are pastures that have low pH soils underneath them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Maine, our soils are naturally acidic. Um, we see pH drop over time. It's really critical that, that you know, producers that want to have good pastures invest in raising that pH up to 6.0 mm-hmm. or 6.5. You'll see significant improvement in yield of the grasses. You'll see better quality feed coming off of that. You'll see better quality grasses. And mm-hmm. so lime is usually the source of the amendment that we mm-hmm. want to do to raise soil pH. Um, lime is an investment. You know, we're talking uh, applying one to two tons per acre of lime to mm-hmm. raise soil pH. It's not as cheap as it value. used to be. And it's it's about, you know, depending on where you live, it's going to be between 90 and $100 a ton to apply that lime or get that lime applied. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it is a long-term investment, and um, it's, it's something people neglect doing, and every year it gets worse and worse, and mm-hmm. the pasture degrades and gets worse and worse over time. And the other one is fertility. Um, you know, in, or, in organic management, it's tough to buy organic amendments off the shelf that you'd want to apply to uh, yeah, financially. It's not. It's not. It's not. You don't see an economic return at all. <laughs> so you can't go and bu- and buy organic fertilizer to put on a pasture. It's just yep. not. You can do it in your garden because you have a high value crop. Mm-hmm. You can do it in you know commercial vegetable operation but in a pasture operation it's just not a high value crop so most people are going to use manures whether that's manure from their own animals manure Mm -hmm. from another farm or poultry manure from a facility in central maine that tends to be a source of nutrients for a lot of uh, farms as Mm -hmm. well and pastures Mm -hmm. and that has some liming value along with it so it's a lot of benefit to uh, manure being applied to pastures and if you do that, you need to take into consideration the fact that, you know, animals don't really want to graze around pastures that have had manure applied to it. So you want to think about when you do that mm-hmm. and your grazing management techniques to make sure that uh, the manure gets potentially degraded and incorporated by microorganisms into the soil before you graze again. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it, I think it just really emphasizes that good pasture management, especially for organic farms, is, is really important because the cost of feed and grain is is the the biggest expense and so the best the better they can do at managing their pasture and getting the most they can out of their pasture Mm -hmm. for feed will reduce the overhead costs for keeping those cows and will increase the profit of the farm it's not just something to just put the cows out and let them go for it you know and not not do a good job of management because you don't get the same production Mm -hmm. so and, and a lot of economic studies show that a lot of dairy farmers make most of their money, organic mm-hmm. dairy farmers make most of their money in those five months of the grazing season right. because that's yeah, they can sure. take advantage of the fact that it's good quality, cheap feed in a sense. Mm-hmm. Right. But they have to manage those pastures correctly right. to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So they'd be feeding, would they be feeding maybe less grain at that time? Because it, of the- it really depends. Each farm's going to have a different management style. And, yeah. And, yeah. You know, it, it really depends on what their goals are and how they decide how they want to feed their cows. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, as Diane mentioned earlier, carbohydrate protein balance is important. So I'm an advocate of supplementing dairy cows on pastures with a, with a carbohydrate source or an energy source. Yeah. Um, some farmers want to be all grass-based and not feed a concentrate. Yeah. Um, I, I would, you know, that's their own personal choice. Coming mm-hmm. from the cow's perspective, I would probably want to supplement that. And so I, I lean <laughs> towards the cow's balance of nutrition and probably supplement that. But you also have to think about, you know, what's your goal, what's your system, what's your farm system, how many off What's your, what's your financial requirements are for yeah. the farm? You don't get as much milk out of a cow that's just on pasture. I mean, that's, there's no way you're going to get the same amount of, of milk out of it. So if you have a lot of overhead costs on your farm, mm-hmm. you're going you're gonna to need to feed grain. There's no way around it because you need to get that production in order to offset all the other costs on the farm. So looking to maximize the return there right. on that piece. Yeah. Well, not even maximize it. Just make it enough so that you <laughs> can survive. So it balances out. Yeah, yeah, and and some of it you have to look at look at your animals. And one of the things you need to do right. if you're grazing animals is do what's called body condition scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, so animals that do get a lot of protein and not enough energy are going to lose a lot of weight. Yep. Um, and they'll take that weight loss and put it into their milk production. But it, it you need to make sure that... They don't lose too much weight because mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to put it back on. Animals that are losing lots of weight have a tough time breeding back. They don't cycle as well, so yeah. it's hard to get them bred back. And a dairy cow, we're always challenged to get that cow pregnant every 12 months. So mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's another thing that affects the financial bottom line mm-hmm. for sure. Is reproduction. And yes, yeah. getting a new calf every year yeah. and, and keep her production up. I mean, you can milk a cow more than nine months. I know because I did it. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you can, but, but realize that bread cow's lactation curve, she, she loses 10% of her production per month on a standard lactation right. curve. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay. so you're not going to get the same level of milk out of her. So. You make more money in the first three to four months on a dairy cow's lactation than you make in the rest of the year. So Okay. Yeah, yeah. so you want to optimize that cycle. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll uh, remind listeners again that this is Common Ground Radio, and we're talking about pastures and forage uh, with Rick Kurzbergen of uh, Cooperative Extension and Diane Shavera from Mofka. And the lines are open for any questions or comments, and that number is one 625 9378 One thing I wanted to ask about was the just considering kind of maybe the abandoned or run-down pastures, Diane, you had mentioned uh, goats being a good species to run through there to try to work back some of those weeds. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious about the, uh, within, with just within a pasture, what species may be considered, plant species may be considered weedy species within, within a pasture or is the things the animals aren't going to like to eat, maybe. Um, well, I mean, there's always the goldenrod and milkweed, and the animals don't eat very much milkweed at all. Mm-hmm. Some people consider it poisonous. I think on minor scales it's not so bad. But, um, yeah, what else? Well, <laughs> there's lots of, you know, grazing, animals grazing is a learned behavior. Right, So yes. animals learn from, you know, calves learn from the cows. Mm-hmm. So what animals eat on one farm is based on what the what they've you know, learned previous animals might have 
taught them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so certain weeds, uh, you know, bed straw is a weed that right. I, we get yeah. lots of calls this time of year. What's that white flowering weed in my pasture? Yeah. And it's it's smooth bed straw, Gallium melogo. Smells nice. It, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is a weed, but it's it's not poisonous. Animals can consume it. Some animals need to be taught how to graze it. Mm-hmm. Some animals refuse to graze it. So it's, it's one of those learned behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the problem with it is it's just not very productive. You right. Know, yeah. It's a lot of stem full. and not a lot of leaf. Exactly. And then if you try and harvest that as a, a forage crop, as a hay crop, you, there's nothing there once you start drying it out. So, yeah. so anyway, you know, it really is a learned behavior. But you've got to make sure that if you try and teach animals, and you can try and teach your animals to graze certain things, you need to make sure that you're not teaching them to graze a poisonous plant. Right. So that's one of the issues we always love working yeah. right. and, and actually, Can we hold on a sec? Oh, Just Because sure. I think we have, a, we have a caller on the line. So if okay. caller, if you want to go ahead with your, uh, the na- your name and where you're calling from, and then your comment or question. Sure. It's Catherine from Appleton. I'm just wondering about the uh, nutritional value of the first hay as opposed to the subsequent ones and the value of this hay this year since we hardly got any snow and now we're in a drought and um and it looks like it's going to continue so i just wonder how you see the hay that i guess you get two more cuts before the fall how you see that developing and the other thing is i think the indigenous people always said what leave take no no more than a third so i wonder if when cutting the hay they leave a third so it can regenerate and these are questions and the next one is how are the ticks on on all the animal and i mean it's they're horrible on the wild creatures and on us but how are how are the the, the farmers dealing with the ticks that the um the cattle and farm animals pick up okay i'm going to listen off air thank you all right thank you for your call and questions Catherine. um rick do you want to go for the sure Value so, of the first crop. So just as I said earlier, you know, first crop versus second crop versus third crop. If you see the head, the quality's dead. <laughs> so let's stick with that in terms of quality. Um, so the quality of a grass declines dramatically when we have increasing sunlight. So as we go through May and June, as that plant grows, it's, it's producing a fair amount of feed. Mm-hmm. but it also goes to reproductive status relatively quickly because we have increasing daylight. Um, and it, you know, it's the first crop of the season. So a lot of times if you're going to harvest a hay crop, the best time to harvest that is around 15th of May. A lot of farmers are pretty hesitant to even think about that at that time because we have lots of challenges. One, we don't have lots of great drying weather. We have wet soils. It's hard to make dry hay then. Mm-hmm. And they also want to have a higher yield. But in terms of nutritional quality, that's the best time to do it. As we get into second and third cutting, you'll notice that the plants are a lot slower to go from a vegetative to reproductive stage. Mm-hmm. And so that grass tends to stay more vegetative. And so a lot of times we'll see more that. More leaves. That, more leaves compared to stem. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see that crop have a higher nutritional value. And it's also less dependent on um, you know the maturity status because that maturity status of the grass doesn't it go from vegetative to reproduction as fast because the day length is shorter. Yep. So we tend to think that second and third crop tend to be as, as a higher nutritional profile, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't make high quality first cutting hay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get it off early, like you said. Exactly. Yeah. And this year, um, actually the reports are that we're getting incredibly large yields of first cutting hay. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so people are reporting lots and lots of feed availability right now in terms of, of hay and, and the volume of hay. Yeah, it's so just whether it, the second cut's going to come back if yeah, you don't get any rain. Obviously depends. So I have actually, I'm working with several farms that have already started harvesting their second crop hay before mm -hmm. the 4th oh, of July. Great. So Wow. That's terrific. Yeah. And so were those farms able to harvest uh, first cutting in yeah, that they were, window? I, I visited one farm that was harvesting their first crop. They didn't do it as dry hay. They did it as a silage package, you know, mm -hmm. round bale, those white round bale silage packages. And um, they were doing that around the 15th of May this year. So Yeah, that's one thing. You mentioned that the difference between doing hay and doing baleage, it's... it's the baleage has really improved the ability for farmers to be able to get that early cut off because they don't have to get it dried down as right. much. So it and it makes a great quality feed. The cows really love it. So it's, it's less weather dependent, right? So. Yeah, because you get it off faster. Mm -hmm. so. As for the ticks, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's a tough one. I, you know, I've already. I deal with lots of people bringing ticks into my office for identification, but that's ticks on, on humans, not on animals. I haven't really dealt with any producer that's been concerned about ticks on their animals, although... Um, no. They do get them, though. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them on my own. It, it's definitely an issue. Um, I know that cows have been shown to get Lyme disease. I don't think it's their resistance or tolerance to it must be a whole lot higher or they, mm -hmm. they just don't show that they're having a problem as much because, it, you know, you, it's rare that you hear about Lyme disease with tick, with uh, cattle, but uh, but I know that it has happened. So same with horses. I think horses are a little bit more susceptible. But but I've pulled them off of my cows and, and off of my donkey too. So, hmm. yeah. Okay. I think ticks are a concern for most people these days. They seem to be on the rise. Yeah. Yeah, pulled off many off myself too. Yep, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then I uh, we talked a little bit about first cut, second cut hay, third cuttings, and I just wanted to ask you, Rick. You mentioned uh, the wrapped bales in baleage. And could could you just explain that? The sure. Have seen, I'm sure they've seen the seen the, the white, white marshmallows. And, <laughs> yeah. So, so silage is is a way of preserving feed instead of drying that hay. Um, you know, like we see a square bale or a round bale of hay out in a field that's been dried, and that's it's preserved by drying, just like we would dehydrate food, we're dehydrating the grass. Mm -hmm. um, so the silage or haylage, depending on how you want to call it, is is a package where we're we're creating an anaerobic situation, just like you would pickle something or ferment it, and that's exactly what we're doing. And and for that to happen, the grass needs to be, um, you know, in an anaerobic package, and so the plastic creates that anaerobic. That's package. no air. What's that? No air. Oxygen. No air. Anaerobic. I'm Lack sorry. Of it's okay. Lacks of oxygen. For those people. And so that's what that plastic is. So, I mean, it's critical that farmers get the right moisture content. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that fermentation requires carbohydrates and sugars like we talked about earlier. And so the farmers will usually mow that and let it dry a little bit to increase the concentration of fermentable carbohydrates. Okay. So when they do make that round bale package, it's moist, but it's not... 100% water, you know, or a, yeah. lot, a lot of water. Yeah. So they dehydrate it to some extent, and then they bale it and wrap it with mm -hmm. the plastic. Yeah. So the moisture is necessary for that fermentation? The moisture is necessary for the fermentation, but too much moisture will, you know, the concentration of carbohydrates will be too low because it would be too much water in that package, and it wouldn't ferment well. Okay. So it's important to, to dehydrate that a little bit and then mm -hmm. ferment it. And then too dry would probably have its own issues as well. Exactly. Too dry, you're not going to be able to, again, 
be able to have enough microbial activity for the fermentation. And, and what happens is the pH of that wrapped bale drops to about a 4.5 to 5, so it becomes more acidic, and that's how it's preserved. Mm-hmm. Okay. What would happen if you were to wrap just a dry round ale? Well, actually, people have done that because, you know, I've harped that on the fact that I hate, <laughs> I hate to see dry hay sitting out in the field because you'll lose 25 to 30 percent of the value of that bale if you leave it just sitting out in the field. And, and mm-hmm. it drives me crazy when I see that. <laughs> um, so some people, you know, I, I always recommend, you know, the investment of building a pole barn to store your hay is, is really a good one because it, it'll pay you back in a very short amount of time to get uh-huh. that bale out of the field and, and into a dry storage area. But some people have wrapped dry round bales. Um, the issue there is if you don't have that package very, very dry, uh-huh. it's going to create a molding issue inside, and that does occur. But yeah. some people do that just because I've been harping on them. The fact <laughs> of leaving that hay bale outside, you're losing a lot. Yeah. Um, so so we do see that occasionally. But. So yeah. wrapping just the dry one to preserve it better? Or yeah. But just yeah. realize, you know, that plastic has a cost. It's, it's around $3 up to $4 per wrapped bale of just the cost of that plastic. Mm-hmm let alone the fact that, you know, there's no way to recycle that yeah, plastic yeah, or not a good yeah, way to recycle it. Another, there's a whole other cost, too. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to mention yep. just um, when we, we started to talk about teaching your cows and, and animals to eat weeds, um, we're doing a, a session at uh, Aldermere Farm on the 30th of July. Okay. Um, it's part of the beef, beef basics class that they're doing, but we're doing a, um, which is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, that session but our part is only on the Saturday um, but we're doing a bunch of pasture basics and pasture management but also um, Kimberly Hagen from over in Vermont is coming over to talk about teaching your animals to eat weeds Mm -hmm. so if you're interested in that it would be a great chance to get a chance to uh, hear a little bit more information about that okay so that's down at Aldemere Farm Farm in in Rockport Rockport, July 30th yes and um, it I'm sure if you go to their website, you can get the information for for okay. signing up. And actually, I think you sign up through the Knox County Soil and Water Conservation District. Oh, okay. And it, so and there's no cost for that part of the that I the, don't know. Yeah, the pasture management one is 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 being um, funded, supported by the Soil and Water Conservation District. But the other part of it, the beef basics classes, are there is a charge for those, so you have to sign up for those. But it would be good if you signed up for the other ones too, if you could, just so we have an idea of how many copies of things to make you know, for paperwork to hand out. So, otherwise, you might not get any. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we have maybe seven or eight minutes left in the show. I wanted to let listeners know that we are the lines are open. Uh, for comments and questions, and that toll-free number is one 625 9378 And we're talking about pastures uh, and pasture f- management forage systems with uh, Rick Kurzbergen from Cooperative Extension and Diane Shavera from MOFCA. Um, I think as we're getting towards the end of the show, are there, you mentioned the workshop coming up on the 30th mm-hmm. and Ricky would mentioned this new book by Sarah Flack art and science of grazing I'm just curious about other resources that people for people looking to maybe learn more or um, there's a great pa- uh, mm-hmm. where what do I want to say uh, newsletter that comes out on the internet um, it's oh my gosh I'm it's called on pasture on pasture thanks and uh, it's written by 
Kathy Voth and Rachel Gilker are the editors. Um, and it's interesting. They have lots of articles. And, and actually, Kathy Voth is the uh, originator of the livestock eat weeds technique. And right. so if you, if you Google yeah. Kathy Voth, V-O-T-H, mm-hmm. you'll see her publications related to livestock eating weeds and how to teach animals to livestock or teach livestock to eat weeds. So okay. it's Kathy Voth, V-O-T-H. Okay. Yeah. And, and it looks like, oh, sorry, we have another caller coming okay. in. So call up if you want to go ahead with uh, your name and where you're calling from and your comment or question, please. Hello, um, this is Joy calling from Belfast. And um, I guess all the farmers out on the field without any questions, so they're not calling in. Um, and I'm a total consumer and purchaser, so of all our fine main goods and I just this has been so interesting and has given new respect for our, all our local farmers so I just want to thank you for spreading uh, the information so thank you all right well thanks for calling in joy thanks appreciate it thankful for you guys to be here today yes right? nice to know you're appreciated <laughs> um, were there, I think you were about to say something when you were talking about additional resources. Oh, well, yeah, in. and it's also Maine Grass Farmers Network, and we are going to have some pasture walks at some point this year. That It's in the plan. We just have to get organized enough to get have it happen. And uh, so, But we do do a, a, a conference every year, the third weekend, third Saturday in March, so keep that in mind. We mm-hmm. always have some really good speakers. We actually had Sarah Flack um, mm-hmm. last year come and and do a bunch of presentations and was really useful so we try to find new people and if anybody's out there that does hear of a good speaker let me or rick know because we're always looking for new people to do talks for the for the sessions for the conference okay all right and are there other are there other organizations that you guys work with you mentioned the main grass farmers network um well, I'm Maine Sheep Breeders Association too. Um, yeah. They do a certain amount of, you know. I mean, obviously they're feeding their sheep in, on the pastures all during the season. And I think and also uh, we should mention the Natural Resources Conservation Service (NRCS). Mm-hmm. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. They do a lot of uh, cost share programs for fencing and pasture management and watering systems. So, you know, they should people should if they're interested in this and and want to get some technical assistance as well as potential cost share money uh, they should check in with their local soil and water conservation district and the natural resources conservation service to uh, get some of that so they have some tools and techniques that could be beneficial Mm -hmm. yeah yes because part of this whole pasture management and it's not my favorite part either i must admit i haven't done mine for yet for this year but record keeping is really important and um nrcs has has some really great um excel spreadsheets that they have um that you can get from them that help with that record keeping there's also holistic management international that has a bunch of record keeping that's available on their website um there's a whole bunch of other ones that are out there now with all the stuff on the internet but uh, but keeping records of your pastures because we all know that we, though we say we're going to remember something you know yeah oh i had the animals on this spot then mm-hmm. yeah right <laughs> we never really can quite follow through with that or most of us can't 
Um, so it's really important to write all that stuff down and keep track because if you don't know when you graze that pasture, you're got, you know, you can look at the plants. That's, that is an important part of it too. But having that record keeping makes all that looking a whole lot better, especially if you have fields far away from the barn or, or from your farm, you're going to know to go and check a certain one at a certain date rather than having to make an extra trip and find out, oh, wait a minute, that's the one I had them on last week. I just mm -hmm. forgot. Mm -hmm. So anything you can do to make that work better for yourself and work better for your whole farm operation is a good thing. So keeping those records. Yep. Yeah. So one other resource goes back to the early days of, of managed intensive grazing, but there's a book called Greener Pastures on Your Side of the Fence yeah, by Bill great Murphy. One. And so that'd be another resource I would tell people to look up. And it's a very well-written book, but again, it's Greener Pastures on Your Side of the Fence by Bill Murphy. And Bill is a retired uh, professor from University of Vermont. Okay. Sarah actually studied with him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad there's lots of resources available for um, for people that may want to learn more or get started. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that's a big part of the work that you guys both yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and they can always still contact us if they have questions. Yeah. And how... You're going to give out, could you give out contact information in terms of if people wanted to get a hold of you, Diane? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's my uh, email address is dianes at mafka.org. Uh -huh. um, so, and otherwise, you can call the office. It's 568-4142. And if I'm not in the office, they'll give you my home phone number, and you're welcome to call me there, too. Just try not to do it after 9 at night or before <laughs> 7 or so in the morning. That would be kind. But, uh, yeah. Okay. So um, my office number is 800 number if you're calling from in state of Maine, and it's 1-800-287-1426. Again, it's 1-800-287-1426. And my email address, which is a great way to resource, you know, get a hold of me, is yep. richard.kersbergen. It's spelled K-E-R-S-B-E-R-G-E-N. That's at Maine, M-A-I-N-E dot E-D-U. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I prefer the phone. <laughs> you prefer the phone. I do. Email's not my favorite. I don't think I'll ever get good at typing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that you guys are both uh, available to help folks out as, uh, as questions arise and as we move through the grazing season. So I, I think we've only got a couple of minutes left in the show here. So um, I just wanted to remind listeners that you have been listening to Common Ground Radio brought to you here the, uh, on the first Friday of every month. And um, today we've been talking with Rick Kersbergen from Cooperative Extension and Diane Chavera from MOFCA about pastures, pasture management, uh, and a little bit about forage systems and some of the different uh, maybe methods and, and techniques for grazing different animals on different pastures. And, um, and I wanted to thank you guys both for coming in today. Happy uh, to do it. I know that we had a similar show last year, but I think that I know that after the show, I tend to get a lot of follow-up questions from people and direct things your way. So I appreciate you guys being resources for the listeners in the community to help uh, to help keep things going. So uh, with that, we have come towards to the end of the show, and I want to thank uh, Joel for engineering the show today for us. That's fantastic. And again, I'm your host, CJ Walk, and Common Ground Radio, first Friday of every month here on WERU at 10 a.m. And stay tuned for coming up next is On the Wing.
Support for WERU comes from Two Loons Farm in South China with German.